But you can call me... The Riddler. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dudes. Dude. His dudeness. Duder. El Duderino. Dude. Dude. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. I simply love what you've done with this place. Heavy metal meets house and garden. Ha, ha, ha. Beautiful. It's so you. And yet so And now, here's the dudes. Greetings and welcome to the Legion of Dudes podcast in association with Half Hour Wasted Productions and Lucasfilm. Oh no, wait, we didn't get that sponsorship. I'm uh, your uh, lovely and talented uh, opening uh, guy here, Jim Deeds, and I'm joined tonight by the Legion of Dudes, Mr. Russell Latham, Mr. Adam Umack, and Mr. Johnny M. How are you doing, gentlemen? Wonderful. Fantastical. Hello, very goodly. And tonight we're focusing on uh, villains and villainry, the dastardly uh, doings that keep our superheroes so uh, immaculately involved all the time. I remember like back in the day before they had trades all the time, they had a book called Origins of Marvel Comics, which were reprints of like Spider-Man number one, Fantastic Four number one, uh, you know, all the origin stories. And then when they got around to the origin stories of the, uh, the villains, they called it Bring on the Bad Guys. So that's kind of what we're doing tonight. We're bringing on the bad guys. We're going to talk about some of our favorite villains, some of the lamest villains, some of the more uh, evil villains, some of the funny villains, and it's all about the villains tonight. So get your uh, get your evil twin and sit down by the old podcast radio and enjoy. Uh, we have a very special uh, um, announcement for our, our good friend, uh, Mr. Max Headroom on the forums, also known as uh, Mr. B. Hancock. Uh, Johnny, do you want to uh, pass that uh, information along to our good friend? Yes, we would. Uh, this show is sponsored by Max Headroom on the comicforums.com, uh, otherwise known as Brian. He, once again, was good enough to answer the call for our uh, donations. We have a small donations button on the HHWLOD website. helps us to keep the show running and cover all the costs that there are in a free podcast, believe it or not. Um, so we thank Brian a lot for that, and this show is sponsored by him. So thank you, Brian. Now I think we're going to be moving on to some uh, questions from episode 50. Is that right? That is correct. Got a couple here. So yeah, I've got two questions here, so we'll go through the first one. First one from Menno is, what sort of foreign geek things are you dudes fans of, a.k.a. things outside of the state? It's a good question. For me, I guess I could say... Probably the closest thing for me would probably be anime or manga. I'm probably closer on the anime side. You know, things like Robotech, um, Akira. I'm, I'm starting to rewatch the um, Star Blazers, and that's pretty much it. I, I, I kind of racked my brain over, over this one when we did episode 50 and prep for it, and couldn't really think of anything outside of really the the Japanese side of the form. I'm not really into the to the European comics or anything like that so I, I couldn't nothing nothing came to mind other than 
uh, Japanese influence manga and anime. Well, I agree with you, Ross. I uh, I enjoy some an- anime is like a lot of other things. There only there's a lot of uh, not so good stuff out there, but the stuff that is good is really golden. Uh, Cowboy Bebop, Ghost in the Shell, Akira, like you said, uh, Samurai Champloo anime and, and manga like that. I also am a big fan of uh, British comedy. I mean, I grew up with Monty Python, Spaced, The Young Ones. I have a lot of affection for, for the British comedy. So that, I guess that would be another foreign thing that I'd be into. And I love Thai food. <laughs> well, kind of in the same, uh, I guess, TV video category, I'd have to say I'm a pretty big fan of foreign films and that I'm a really big fan of Ingmar Berman, for example. Uh, I really watched my Criterion Collection editions of The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, The Magic Flute. <sighs> Let me think, what else here? Scenes from a Marriage. I, I really like the Bergman stuff from the Criterion Collection, and I'd also toss in some of uh, Luis Buñuel's uh, films, like uh, Simon of the Desert, That Obscure Object of Desire. is probably one of my favorite movies. And also stuff uh, from uh, Federico Fellini. Now, I understand the pretentiousness of that, but... I think that Amarcord, Knights of Cabria, and Variety Lights, and of course Eight and a Half are all pretty cool foreign flicks, and I don't mind reading the subtitles either. I have to second uh, the Bergman real quick. I love Fanny and Alexander. That's one of my favorite movies. Well, I'm uh, sort of on the same page as Adam. I'm a fan of foreign film as well, but I'm more on the side of the bizarre foreign films that uh, I wouldn't get to see anything like that here. You know, your Tokyo Gore Police and your uh, The Audition, Ichi the Killer, you know, stuff that is a little bit more on the extreme side that seems to be like the norm in Asia. You know, we don't really get many films like that. There's something out called Antichrist right now that I'm almost afraid to even look at. Have any of you guys heard of that one, like on the internet buzz on that thing? Is that the one with Willem Dafoe? I don't think so. Because isn't there one where Willem Dafoe's like a psychoanalyst and, well, the kind of, like, the same thing happens? I remember the trailer was pretty was pretty nuts and crazy. Yeah, and I read, like, an article on why they were fighting about the rating in Europe. Uh-huh. And it was crazy. It was, like, the types of mutilation you can have have to be, like, you know, in certain contexts and stuff, I was like, wow, you know, it sounds, <laughs> sounds pretty intense. So I'm, I'm still uh, debating on that one. But I love all the um, I love the stuff that John Woo does back in China now, which totally isn't like the Kung Fu stuff like Red Cliff, which is like huge epic um, war movies and stuff. Uh, we spoke about Mongol a while ago, which is a foreign film about uh, Genghis Khan. So I'm into all that stuff, the different different things that I don't get to see around here. The next question from Alpha Fright. In a perfect world, what comic-based world-slash-city would you like to visit for a vacation? I'll go first, and I will say Themyscira. Oh, <laughs> you, wrong. Uh, you took mine. <laughs> oh, man. I'll go wrong with an island full of women. Amazon women, no less. I, uh, I would have to go with Astro City. I'd like to spend a week in Astro City. I'm going to go with uh, the Triskelion from The Ultimates. Home base. Uh, this is a tough one to throw at me. I, I will go in a reverse direction and say anywhere except Hell's Kitchen or Crime Alley. <laughs> go to the uh, negative, negative speed force if you're going in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> Those are a couple more episode 50 questions we got. We'll, I think we're kind of hitting the, the tail end of those, so maybe we'll go one or two more shows and, and knock those off. And, uh, and uh, you know, maybe if episode 75 or episode 100, we'll, we'll do some more. So I've got a bit of a rant 
this week. And this is something I meant to talk about a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to throw it out here um, tonight. Do you guys remember back in, I guess it was 85, 86, when Marvel did their 25th anniversary? And all the books were the full-size portrait of one of the main characters in, in the book. What, you know, if it was a team book, they just picked one one character, and it was like a full portrait, um, you know, big you know, face picture. And then the border had this cool, like, montage of every character in the Marvel Universe that was drawn like a, like a, almost like a picture frame border. Um, and every book that month had that. So Marvel's doing this big... It's funny how 25 years ago, or pretty close to it, it was the 25th anniversary, and now it's the 70th. But, um, I know they're doing the whole timely. They're going back to the, to the timely days. But um, So they're pushing this big 70th anniversary thing. And I'm looking through the solicits in you know, Newsarama and CBR, and they're doing the same thing, um, except these, these have a little bit more of an artistic flair to them, but the same general principle where you get a border of, you know, now it's 25 years later, so it's not quite every character in the Marvel Universe, but the lion's share of the, of the big ones are all, you know, done as this border again. And then there's, there's a white background and basically a, a character on the middle. And instead of doing that just among the, the regular books, they're doing them as variants, and that just really just bugs the crap out of me. Because when I was a kid getting comics, I I would pick up those 25th anniversary books just because I thought they were cool-looking covers. You know, I think it would be neat to kind of either, you know, bind them all or, you know, just, just to be able to kind of flip through them and just kind of see them all. Because it was kind of, it, it wasn't always straightforward. You know, like the Avengers had Black Knight, and then the, the, the X-Men one was Wolverine with his, you know, face mask kind of tore up from fighting Sabretooth, that issue. And the new ones look really nice, and they've got some top-notch talent on them. But that just really bugs me that it's it's variant. So you know you got to pay ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty dollars um, to get them, even even just the common ones. And that just I don't know. I I think that was just kind of a a crappy move on Marvel's part. Was there ever a time when? Because I know there's different levels of variants. Like you know, there's. I, I don't know. I guess the more that the LCS orders, then you know, it, it denotes whether you can get that variant or not. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a time when, like, you could flip through the rack at a store and find a variant? Like, you understand what I'm getting at? Like, were they ever mixed in with all the comics, or have they always been this, we're going to put it up on a shelf and wrap it, you know, and put a $15 price tag on it? Yeah, I've never seen anything short of, you know, bins at conventions and stuff like Pittsburgh that has variant covers with the uh, rank and file, so to speak. Right. So they're comics. I've, I've never, like, you know, seen them elsewhere. Other than, like, the 50 50 variants, which aren't really a variant because mm-hmm. they're the exact same number as the other kind. Right. right. Or the sketch variants or stuff like that. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I've always seen them as as basically what they call them, retailer incentive variants. I mean, the whole purpose is, you know, to, to sell more books. So, you know, but yeah, they do have the different levels. There's, you know, one in 10, one in 25, one in 50, one in 100. And there's even, I forget which book it was, but something not too long ago, was like one in a thousand. And I don't know who, what store in their right mind would order a one in a thousand, have to order a thousand books to get a variant. But, um, but yeah. It, just, it all just it, reminds it, me of the 90s with all the crazy... Yeah. You know, chromium and uh, and you know hologram laser covers, and you know uh, there was even the um, I remember reading about a Kiss comic book that had the DNA like in the ink. You know, just like it just 
when I hear about the variants or whatever, I understand that some people like to collect them and they, they're very rare, but it just, it just smacks of that whole 90s speculator thing that got me out of the hobby for a while. Yeah. I mean, they felt pretty high. I mean, I, you know, I understand the whole business side of it and all, but I think they've done better for the general masses to probably pick up books that they normally wouldn't pick up just because it kind of has that cool cover. I mean, I've definitely fallen into that trap. I mean, now that they're two ninety nine and three ninety nine, so not as much as you know I did twenty five years ago when they were sixty five cents. But um, but I still I would have picked up quite a few of them if they had really cool covers or there was a you know a good top notch artist on one of them. You know, as opposed to now. But I mean, I get you know the 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 theory is that if a shop is ordering eighteen copies of you know book X, that if you put a one in twenty five variant, that you know, they'll order the extra seven copies, you know, just so they could take the variant and basically sell it, you know, for whatever the, the differential is. But, I don't know, it just, it just bugs me. To, to me, that's something that, you know, to me, that should be geared towards the fans, and it should be geared for the, the general public and not, you know, something that's just, you know, used to, to, you know, reward the retailers to flip their stuff on eBay. So, just just to be clear, so I get what you're saying, it's not that... You're not. It's it's not that you have the chance to miss all the characters of the universe. It's just that you're missing all the characters of of the universe in this kind of like throw throwback format, right? Because there's the what is it? The official handbook of the Marvel Universe A to Z that's you know coming out and stuff too. So you, you could technically you know see everybody there, but as a so this is like the collector in you, right? Not the I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna yeah, miss 100%. characters, right? Yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it's it's just. To me, it's just that collector side of my brain that's that's peeking out and just saying, you know, it'd be kind of cool to, you know, to put them on a shelf or to, you know, like I said, either bind them or, you know, or just look back, you know, 10 years from now and go, hey, I remember when Marvel did their 70th and, and look through all those covers just to, you know, just for that. So, yeah, it's just, it's totally collector to me. It's not, you know, the, the issues themselves are nothing different from one to the other. You know, not just like they, they weren't 25 years ago. I mean, it was it's all about the covers. Talk about incentives. I'm buying all the um, Blackest Night issues that uh, have the ring, the free Green Lantern rings in them from DCBS. <laughs> so uh, they got my 15 bucks, man. Yeah. I don't get the... Um, I get the novelty of the ring, I guess, but it's such a... It's such a piece of junk. Like, it doesn't... <laughs> didn't it upset you when you got the Blackest... You know, the Black Lantern ring? It was just like a... I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know what level of jewelry I could imagine to get for free in a Computer. in a comic book, <laughs> right? But you know, but I was like, man, people are really gonna like buy extra books for this. I, you know, I I don't know. Well, it's, I'm curious what they're gonna do with the extra, because I mean, I get the whole if you want a ring, you gotta buy the book thing. I mean, I, I think that makes sense from the retailer perspective. But a retailer, if they order 25 issues of each book. They can order up to a hundred rings. They can order two bags at eight bucks a piece. So there, there are you know thirty six thousand, uh, you know thirty six thousand Green Lanterns or however many. <laughs> so they're just gonna have to do a lot of recruiting, I guess. Yeah, but uh, you know, I just I wonder. So they, if you if a retailer orders twenty five books and they order a hundred rings, what are they gonna do with the other seventy five? Are they gonna package them and sell them as sets? Because to me, even if they sold them for fifty cents a ring, which which is like triple the markup on what they're paying per ring, they're still coming out ahead if they sold them as a set. So, so they're selling seven, you know, whatever, seven rings for 350 and they're only paying, you know, a dollar 
forums, you know, basically those seven rings are only costing them right around a buck. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, curious, so I'd rather just pay the, I'd rather just pay the, you know, the three fifty and just and just get the set and not have to buy all those books. Yeah, they, they're you know they'll probably be you know the tie-in issues and stuff too. You know, remember that DC gave away Green Lantern rings and Flash rings. And hopefully they'll be doing Legion of Superheroes rings, you know, at conventions and stuff. I mean, I picked up a bunch at Baltimore, so we, we might see those, uh, you know, sooner than you think outside of the comic store. Who knows? Okay, so I guess we're ready to chat a little bit about the bad guys uh, for a change of pace. I was thinking we would go around with some breaks in between uh, where we have some forum comments as well. But uh, maybe we'll start with Russ just to talk about your favorite villain or, or a villain group that you've chosen to speak about a little bit for tonight? Yeah, you know, I, I think we all kind of stuck to our strengths for this episode, as, as you'll see when, you know, talking amongst ourselves and, you know, what we wanted to bring to the, to the episode tonight. So, you know, obviously me being very X-Men-centric, that's where I kind of, you know, planted my feet um, to, to bring to this episode. So I kind of picked, I just kind of picked three and mostly my favorite for, for different reasons, and I'll kind of talk about them a little bit. I, I, I don't think we intended for this episode to kind of be a history lesson necessarily. I mean, yeah, we'll go into you know, maybe first appearance and stuff like that, but we're not going to get into detail of every nuance of these characters because we could be here all night. So first up for me is the Brood, and the Brood are kind of an interesting because it's not a, a singular villain but, but a group of villains. Um, and... Basically, what the Brood are, they, they first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 155 from 1982, and they are just a group of insect-like um, hive creatures, They're very similar to, to the alien you know, characters from the Ridley Scott and James Cameron, you know, the, the alien franchise um, style, the, you know, the big head and kind of an insectoid look and very predatory and, and, and all that, and the the X Men first faced them when they were kind of off in space in the you know in the, that 150 arc, and it was when Carol Danvers had been depowered after Rogue zapped all her powers, and, and so there was all that you know going on. Rogue wasn't a member of the team yet, but Carol was kind of hanging out with the X Men because she really didn't know kind of where her place was. So she went with them off into space. They hooked up with the Shi'ar, and out of this, when all of the X Men were infected with this brood. Um, parasite. So basically what happens is the way the brood reproduces, they infect, you know, their host just like the alien does, and then they go undergo a physical transformation. So it's, it's almost like a, a plague that, that populates through the universe. And they make their homes inside of biological ships. So they take these, you know, alien spacefaring creatures, these huge ones, and they basically hollow out the innards and add some, some biotech to it and use that to kind of travel around. And I just always like the concept of, of this, you know, not just a single alien, you know, or not a single villain, you know, where it's not just a character, a group of characters that are, you know, fighting the one, you know, big bad that keeps going and coming. And this was a, a group that kept going. And at the end of the arc, they did destroy the blue home world and kind of wiped them out for the most part. But as we've seen in, you know, the Annihilation stuff, and we've seen later they come up and fight the Avengers, that they're in Planet Hulk, one of the, one of the Hulk's crew, and Planet Hulk was a brood, so you know there's a few stragglers out there that come to to plague and cause trouble every so you know now and then. The other thing that that's kind of had a lot, you know somewhat lasting effect for quite some time was it was really the impetus behind the creation of the New Mutants because while the X Men were off into space, Xavier was infected with a, a brood seedling, and it was kind of you know kind of controlling his mind, and so the you know 
Xavier really his motivation behind bringing the new mutants in was to to propagate more brood. So when the X Men finally came back from space, knowing that the professor was infected, his body was actually taken over by the brood, and they couldn't save him. So the, the technically the professor Xavier we know today and now is really a, a Shi'ar clone body, where his consciousness was was added to it, which was significant also because then Professor Xavier was actually starting to walk. This is back in the in the early '80s as well. So kind of had some, some lasting effects, especially through the 80s, and then uh, when he disappeared for a while, and like I said, they, they pop up now and then. So, so that's one of my one of my groups there. Yeah, also the Brood was a force to be reckoned with uh, in the Overpower card game back in the days of uh, when I was in middle school. We, <laughs> I, ran, uh, I ran a Blob, Brood, Magneto, and, oh my gosh, Mystique team that was pretty much undefeatable on... Boy Scout camping trips, so they have my great respect till this day. <laughs> I, I remember that one episode, the uh, one issue of uh, Uncanny X Men with Kitty Pride by herself uh, in the X Mansion, being chased by uh, a brood. Uh, I'm sure you remember that one, Russ. It's like one of the few Christmas issues. She was, you know, I think the title was like uh, "Welcome to the X Men, Hope You Survive," that kind of thing. But that's probably my favorite brood story, Russ. How long were they like, um, and maybe you know the time frame, how long were they like prominent in the X-Books? Because I remember, you know, I'm going to say, if I had to guess, maybe 84, 85-ish, picking up Uncanny issues, and they were big. Like, they, it was seemed like it was always against the brood at whatever time I was reading then. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was pretty much this one arc, and then like the follow-up arc, and then they went away for a while, and then they would they would kind of come back here and there, I'm trying to think of when they they became prominent again. I want to say like when Jim Lee came on to the book later, like in the 90s. But you know, the big thing with it was that first arc. You know, right, like I said, right around 1983, was they they kind of destroyed the home world. So at, at, for a while, they thought they were actually gone for good, um, which wasn't the case because you know a couple of them had landed on Earth, and like I said, they came back to play the Avengers. So they were kind of they kind of been this recurring villain that that pops up every so often and it's you know every time you know they 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 feel comfortable because they think they've gotten rid of the last one it's you know they're like roaches you know another one another one pops up so after that initial arc they they stayed away for for quite a while they weren't they weren't too prevalent next on my my hit list is another villain and this is kind of a lot of people say kind of quintessential 90s type of character, but I think they, you know, had his roots in the 80s as well, kind of when, when I was kind of moving out, is Mr. Sinister. I remember when he first started popping up, he, he looked very similar to Colossus to me. So he, the way his, his costume was, he had the white face, but the costume kind of had the bands around the chest and the arms, like, you know, that looked a lot like Colossus's metal form. But the one thing I, I always thought was cool about Sinister was we found out he was really behind the Marauders during the whole Mutant Massacre thing, and they kind of hinted at that um, his first full appearance was in Uncanny 221, but Sabretooth kind of dropped the hint that he was the big bad behind the whole massacre in Uncanny 212. So we kind of got this hint of this sinister character in 212, and then, you know, it was almost 20 issues, you know, you know, 10 or 12 issues later when he popped up, which was typical Claremont. You know, Claremont had so many plot threads, you know, streaming out in, in that book that, you know, stuff didn't pay off for quite some time. But he really got played up in the 90s, and the cartoon, I think, had a lot, you know, to do with this as well, but he really just kind of had this affinity and fascination with the gray and the summer's DNA, and so it was always his 
goal to really, and, and it, it kind of shows how, you know, in the backstory, how he's kind of plotted to move those two together um, and even created Madeline Pryor, who was the clone of Jean, um, and kind of set her up to marry Scott, and they had, you know, of course, had their son Cable. So I always just thought it was kind of cool to have this villain that's not just this super powerful, you know, able to morph kind of villain, but somebody that's just, you know, truly sinister and just behind the scenes trying to, you know, he's, he's always, you know, messing with Scott. You know, Scott just can't get free from him. He's always there. And, and the more they do with the backstory, you, you always see him, you know, hanging out when Scott was a child. And, you know, you know they always work him into to Scott's background. And, What's uh, the thing in the middle of his forehead? Is that just a weird design element, or does that actually do anything? That big red diamond? No, it, it, you know he 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 was just a regular guy in the 19th century, just a scientist that was fascinated with Darwin. So right. you know, of course, of course, apocalypse is the whole you know survival of the fittest, all that. So he kind of the two of them kind of got together, and it was apocalypse that mutated him. So when after that mutation, that's when that kind of that diamond thing got put on his forehead. But I have no idea. That's just, uh, you know, it's almost like a plot device in a way. And, that's so and they then, don't. Know, that's so you know it's not Colossus, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing too is like whenever he's he's disguising himself as somebody else, that's always kind of the giveaway. They'll always do that one panel where he'll turn away or look at the camera, and you'll see the diamond thing on his forehead to know that you know that's kind of who it is. But like I said, I always like that kind of behind the scenes, you know, just just always jacking with people, kind of kind of kind of villain. And recently, they they killed him off in the books. Mystique um, finally did find a way to do away with him, and he kind of did this thing where he set up basically set up clones of himself that are able to carry on. And so there's now a female, and she calls herself Miss Sinister. And so the jury's still out on her. She's kind of presumed dead at this point. But is it it it, it doesn't appear that she has any of his memories or um, you know thoughts and powers and stuff. But I think that's TBD. I think we'll see. Uh, down the road where that kind of comes to play out. Um, and they kind of did the same thing with um, uh, Bullseye, too, right? They had a Lady Bullseye? Just recently, they created a Lady Bullseye for the arc that just ended. Jeez, oh, man. When are they going to have, uh, like, Madame Mojo or, like, Blobette? Yeah. Because we need to... Well, the ex- <laughs> yeah, the experts did this whole thing where it was, like, the uh, the sisterhood of evil. So it was, like, Lady Deathstrike, and it was um, Spiral from the, from the Mojo world. And it was a taken over uh, Psylocke and, of course, Miss um, Ministry. So it was like the whole, like the female cabal. And I think, you know, with the whole Lady Bullseye thing, I think it was just something that Marvel was kind of doing for a while is to take, you know, male characters and kind of put the female spin on them. So, like Namorita. <laughs> yeah, Namorita. The last, okay, so I'll, I'll finish up with the last one. And, of course, if you're talking X-Men villains, you got to talk about Magneto. Of course, appeared in X-Men number one in 1962 when, when X-Men first came out. And for a long time, he was just kind of the typical bad guy. You know, very one-dimensional, you know, had his brotherhood of evil, and he pretty much stayed that way, and they always did goofy things where an alien came and sucked him off to another planet, and that's how they kind of did away with him for a while, and he would always find a way to come back. And it really wasn't until Claremont came onto the book that they started to flesh out the backstory. Um, you know, the whole concept of Xavier and Magneto being opposite sides of the same coin and having, you know, the, the whole comparison of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, you know, that didn't come along until quite some time later until Claremont was able to flesh a lot of that out um, and, and kind of, you know, made him a lot more two-dimensional than he had been in the past. 
and it was it was really you know interesting how he you know kind of had this history with the X Men, and then he went through a period where he created he was actually into creating mutants, um, and created a, a mutant called Alpha the the Ultimate Mutant. Alpha the Ultimate Mutant actually de-aged him into a baby. Moira Mattagger tried to basically take him as a baby and basically take out what made Magneto evil to see if maybe on a second go-around, if she could she could kind of condition him out of it, he would actually grow up and, and you know, be good. So that kind of went on for a while. And then he was, of course, unaged. Um, so I think that's how they kind of explain some of the discrepancy with him, with the whole being in Auschwitz and... Um, you know, still being relatively young because whole de-aging and re-aging thing. And then he went through kind of this phase where he went around 150, where he was kind of threatening the world to take over. He sank a Russian submarine, and he was about to do something, and Kitty Pride would have been killed. And at that instant, he kind of really saw, like, front and center the, the consequences of his actions. He thought he'd kill Kitty. And he kind of came around and realized that, you know, he needed to, to kind of chill out a bit and, and, you know, maybe his approach wasn't the best approach. And started to kind of be a friend to the X-Men. And we kind of saw it, the first time I ever saw it, which was one of the best X-Men stories, if not the best comic stories ever, was Marvel Graphic Novel Number no. 5, God Loves Man Kills, which is an awesome story, the, the primary basis for, for the X-2 movie, um, where Magneto is really kind of coming to around to not be such a bad guy and really getting closer to the X-Men. And then, of course, after X-Men 200, when Professor Xavier's kind of gravely injured and the Shi'ar whisk him away to heal him, Magneto's on trial at that point, and he's trying to get an acquittal to basically say the man he was when he did all the horrible things is not the man he is now. You know, he's a different physical person and all that kind of stuff. And he was able to... So basically, Xavier's last wish as he was getting ready to get whisked away, possibly never to return... Um, was for Magneto to look after the school as, as he would. And Magneto really kind of turned the page at that point and became headmaster of the school, took on the you know, new mutants. While he still kind of had that, that twinge of the militant root in him, um, really was a good guy. Um, and that went on for, for quite some time. Um, he actually went into the Hellfire Club and became the White King. And then, of course, you know, like everything else, Magneto decides to, to go back to his evil ways. And then, you know, in the 90s, you know, with all the, the whole fatal attractions thing where he sucked the adamantium out of Wolverine's body, which, I mean, a lot of people rag on that nowadays, but I actually thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. You know, the fact that, that he kind of still had his claws, you know, because up to that point, everybody was convinced that they were just metal claws, it was all mechanical. So to see the, the actual, you know, bone claws come out of there and, and what they did with them, uh, I think it was really cool. I think it failed afterwards, but... But that instant was, was a really cool thing. And it was something that, you know, Magneto being the master of magnetism, you know, why had that never happened in the, in the past? And for, for, for them to just finally pull the trigger and make that happen, I thought was really cool. I remember that. Uh, I remember when that issue came out. That was a really cool cover with the, you know, crazy hologram and whatnot on it. And I remember um, the one page with the, just the giant adamantium spikes all over all these goons' heads and stuff like that. And sure enough, one of our buddies from the forums, Beer Nutta, all the way in Australia, um, he was able to snag that original page, uh, the double-page splash, where all these giant adamantium spikes are through guys' heads and stuff. It's pretty crazy to see it. So that kind of cemented you know, Magneto again as the, as the premier villain that he is. And then, of course, Xavier mind-wiped him and turned him into vegetable for quite some time. And then, you know, of course, again, he shows up in, in Claremont and Lee's X-Men number one, 
and then it was presumed killed, but he wasn't really killed and came back. And it had all that drama. And then most recently, I got to say most recently, it's been several years now, when Morrison took over New Axe, he did the craziest thing with Magneto that, to me, never made any sense whatsoever. There was a character that was introduced in, in one of the annuals as this Chinese mutant that was held in a prison for years and years called Zorn. And he had his head, his mutant power was he could heal, but he, he had to wear this containment helmet because his head was actually like a sun. It was just crazy. I mean, very Morrison. Um, and he could still, but yet he could still talk. So the X-Men freed him. He became onto the X-Men. He became a healer. He ended up healing Professor, Professor X and made him walk and all this crazy stuff. And then he kind of started his own little militant wing and was kind of teaching. That was when Morrison exploded the school out into, you know, millions of mutants and hundreds of mutants at the school. And Zorn kind of started his own little thing. And then in the end, it turns out that Zorn wasn't really Zorn. Zorn was really Magneto, and he was messing with him the whole time. And that's when he kind of took over, you know, New York and had this big thing and, you know, sent Jean Grey and Wolverine off into space and, and, you know, that, that was the, the second, even though people think Jean Grey died many, many times, that was the second time Jean Grey died, and she's been dead since then. But Wolverine came back and basically cut his, cut his head off, cut Magneto's head off to kill him once and for all. And then since then, they've, it's a very, very convoluted, I still don't know the, the end tale, but they've come back and basically said, no, that really wasn't Magneto, it was really somebody else, and it, that wasn't Zorn, and it was very, very convoluted, and they... I think um, Bendis ended up picking it up in New X-Men and kind of finished off that whole story and got it set straight. But, uh, but and of course he was, de- you know, Magneto was depowered on M Day to be repowered um, probably sometime in the future. So um, again, he's kind of gone from you know the quintessential villain to to being a lot more you know two-dimensional to kind of going back to being one-dimensional to starting again to be. I think thanks to the movies to being more two-dimensional than, than he has been in the past. How did you enjoy the movie version of Magneto? I I was kind of torn. I, I didn't love Ian McKellum just because he was kind of, I don't know, a little too old for me for the for the movie version. You know, I wanted, like I guess, a more physical presence for Magneto. But I love the way they played the whole angle of Xavier and Magneto's you know, interactions like you were saying before about how they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. So I really enjoyed that, but I didn't love like the casting choice, I guess. What'd you think? Oh, of it? I loved it. Oh, I thought it was spot on. I just love the way McKellen, I, I, I agree. I think, I think he may be a little too old for that character just because they've, you know, I, and I guess a lot of it is just, they've, he's kind of been young, you know, maybe younger in the books, but I thought his performance was spot on. I mean, I just love the, kind of a dry wit and the you know the way he, you know, interacts with Xavier and, and just his I don't know. I just I just love the way he's he's portrayed. Yeah, I thought the acting was obviously great. I just I guess just visually is what I mean. Yeah, no, I was fine with it. I I, I thought it was a, it was better than what I expected. I had a lot of concerns about the costume and, and the the way they were kinda of going about it, but I think it I think it came off well. I I, I really wouldn't change change too much about it to be honest with yeah, like uh, you need somebody with that kind of presence uh, for Magneto. Magneto is supposed to be an inspirational leader. You know, he's the one who brings the Brotherhood. You know, collects them toward him. You know, to follow him. And he went. You know, he's a natural leader and has that kind of. And uh, Ian McKellen really brought that kind of cadence, that kind of presence 
you know, that Magneto should have as a character. I understand what you're saying, John. In the, the comics, he seems like he's a little younger, a little more muscular or whatever, but I really I really thought, like Russ said, McKellen's performance was spot on. That pretty much wraps things up for me. I, you know, like I said, I just kind of picked three, you know, three that are kind of in my wheelhouse that I could kind of, you know, spew on about for a while and, uh, and just kind of, kind of talk about why I like or, or, you know, the issues I have with the character. Well, I would like to talk about recent, and I noticed there's a recent trend lately. Um, first of all, lame supervillains. Uh, you know, Marvel was especially um, guilty of this in the 70s with uh, villains like the, the eel and the porcupine and uh, Rocket Racer, villains like that. And then lately, we've been seeing a resurgence of these kind of lame-o villains from the 60s and 70s, like reinvented um, for you know new readers. Like good example would be the Calculator uh, from DC. Back in the day when he first came into being, first came out, he literally had like a giant calculator touchpad on his chest, and would push the different buttons for different gimmicks. It's just, I mean, if you go back, I'm sure you can, you know, you can wiki it or, or seek it on Google. It's hilarious. And then now he's more like the um, the tech master or the oracle type person for, um, you know, the DC villains, uh, pretty much. So, they, you know, they took something that was super lame and then uh, reinvented and turned it around. The first story I wanted to talk about was uh, in 1979, you know, turn back the Wayback Machine a little bit. Uh, David Anthony Kraft and Keith Giffen, Keith Giffen just starting out in comics at this point, did the story, a story in uh, Defenders called uh, Who Remembers Scorpio? And Scorpio was kind of this B-list villain from the Zodiac gang who had, uh, you know, they'd attacked the Avengers a couple times. But it turns out in this story that uh, Scorpio is actually Nick Fury's younger brother. And he's kind of middle-aged now. And he's tired of um, the whole supervillain thing, you know. And his whole... Um, the whole gist of the story is he's going after one last time he's going to, you know, try to, to make the supervillain thing work. And, you know, one last time he's going to try to, you know, to, to he creates a, um, a robotic Zodiac gang to back him up, you know, and thinking that the last time his big mistake was that he had, like, actual people with actual, you know, free freedom of thought. So the defenders at this point included the Hulk, Moon Knight, uh, Valkyrie, Hellcat, Nighthawk, and uh, they, the Giffen art at this point really is, is really reminiscent of Jack Kirby. But the whole gist of the story is it, it, it seems like a pretty normal, you know, supervillain beat-em-up. But they, um, David Anthony Kraft took the time to really build Scorpio as a character. He has this um, LMD, life model decoy of Nick Fury that follows him around. And he talks to the life model as if he actually were uh, his brother, Nick Fury. And by the time the story is over, the defenders are about to defeat him. And off-camera... He uh, basically commits suicide just because he can't deal with another failure as a supervillain. And reading that at like 11 or 12 years old, it's just like B or C list supervillain, you know, along the lines of Stilt Man or, you know, like, the, like I said before, Plant Man or the Eel or the Porcupine, you know, realized that, you know, he was too old to try it again. He was too, you know, he had failed too many times and uh, basically just decided that him as a supervillain was a, a total failure. So um, that's the one story I, I wanted to bring up as far as uh, you know, really like on the on the surface lame, you know, B-list superheroes or supervillains. I'm sorry, who uh, you know, writers have turned around and told good stories about. Yeah, how about um, Calendar Man? Because he, like the calculator, another good example. That's another used good to example. Have, you know, a calendar on his chest, <laughs> and then when the Long Halloween and, and Dark Victory came around, they did a. A redo of him, and I'd also say back in the old Wonder Woman days, uh, Egg Fu the fifth, 
and then they changed up Egg Fu, and they called him Chang Sung and all. You know, he had like a bunch of, you know, I think he claimed he had like 10,000 names. But you could check out Egg Fu, an awesome Egg Fu story, in um, uh, 52 from DC as well. I just want to mention that um, Sean Pryor had, had posted this question in our forum. We asked for some comments about villains and stuff for this episode. And, and he his his question was exactly, you know, what villains do we see... Uh, that have made this transition because he was saying how a good writer can can do exactly what we're talking about. I think all the, we've been talking a lot about Ed Brubaker lately with the Captain America that we covered and, and the Iron Fist that uh, we're in the middle of covering now. And I think there's some good examples in his um, Daredevil work and his Captain America work. I mean, we've talked about Batroc the Leaper coming back in, in Captain America and Dr. Faustus and... Uh, uh, in Daredevil, he did it with Gladiator and like the Tarantula and, and stuff. Arnzola. Yeah, Arnzola, right, exactly. So he's really the master, I think, right now, or one of them anyway, of, of bringing these characters, you know, into some, uh, making them a, a halfway decent threat. Purple Man, he's made a comeback on New Avengers when they had the breakout on the slab, on the slab, uh, New Avengers number one, you know, uh, him and Luke Cage were going, you know, toe to toe. But, you know, there's still definitely goofy ones that you know Jim had mentioned one of the weirdest ones I did kind of a search and I, I've never heard of this guy his name is uh, the purple pile driver and he was a superman enemy from action comics around the 70s and he shot green liquid out of his head inexplicably so there you go <laughs> nice well there I mean there are there are really lame villains on both sides there's the uh I mean, I remember the, the character named Big Sur from the days of the Bwahaha Justice League. And his superpower is <laughs> basically that he was just big and strong. Or uh, Multi-Man, or the original Clock King. I know they've changed him up lately. But, I mean, before he was just like a guy with a big, you know, bunch of clocks on his cloak, you know. Um, one of my favorite comics back in the day was a uh, supervillain team-up, late 70s, early 80s. And it usually had Dr. Doom and Namor. Uh, as the main characters, but they also would bring in uh, Atuma and Tiger Shark, and it was a villain-centric book, and it was kind of weird. At the same time, DC had a um, uh, villain-centric book also called uh, Secret Society of Supervillains that uh, had Captain Comet as the uh, the main character, but actually the real um, stars of the story were Grodd and Star Sapphire, Solomon Grundy, and uh, a lot of the villain characters then. And it's rare that we see villain-centric books now, and one of the ones I wanted to mention just came out a couple of years ago from uh, Fred Van Lente. Uh, it's called uh, Super Villain Team Up, Modox 11. And if you're all familiar with Modoc, he's a big flying head, pretty much from uh, Marvel. And uh, he takes these uh, B-list uh, villains uh, like Puma and Mentallo and the Armadillo, the Living Laser and Rocket Racer, who used to ride around on a rocket-powered skateboard back in the 70s. And... Um, Van Lente takes all these characters and throws them into this like Ocean's Eleven style plot where each one of them has a part to play. And uh, it's really kind of cool uh, interaction with all these like C-list villains who you know, maybe made one or two appearances in the past. Um, so if you can find the trade for that, I really recommend it. It came out in 2007. Um, the writer, as I said, was Fred Van Lente. And the artist on that was uh, Francis Portella, I hope I'm saying that right. But that's a really good use of uh, of really cheesy villains in the service of a really good story. Uh, I know I passed this one on to Johnny. I hope he, he ends up checking it out and reading it. Yeah, definitely. It, it's it looks like a great time. I've I've gone through it a little bit, and uh, I, I laugh pretty much at any page with Modoc on it. It's just <laughs> it's just a funny 
site. And there's a bunch of people on the forum that have taken a Modoc picture and then like Photoshop their face into the spot. So they have like a big Modoc body. I don't know if you've noticed any of those guys on the forums, but that's pretty cool. The coolest thing about it is it kind of gives us the, uh, the origin of Modoc uh, in the story. Like, I guess Modoc wasn't always, he didn't always look like that. At one point, he was a regular guy, at least according to this version. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about it, and I haven't, I haven't picked it up, but I, uh, I definitely kind of don't. Aren't they making a follow-up to that? They're doing like another Modoc series, I thought, or something, because it, it actually did. You know, rain delay. Well. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. For a dark rain. Oh, right, right, right. I did, yeah, but I uh, like I said, the supervillain team up back in the day was one of my favorite comics, and. This was an excellent throwback to that. It made use of characters that, I mean, I thought I had a pretty good knowledge of, uh, of cheesy Marvel villains, but man, they really, uh, they really went to bat with this one. And the last one I'd like to mention as a, as a cheesy villain, and kind of a really cool story as well, comes from uh, Kurt Busiek's Astro City, Volume 1, Number 10, or Volume 2, Number 10. It's the story of uh, the Junk Man. He's basically your gizmo type uh, uh, supervillain. He's able to take you know junk from a uh, junkyard or what have you and make like fantastical gadgets out of it. And the junk man is the foe of Jack in the Box, who's kind of an amalgam of uh, Daredevil and Spider Man in um, the Astro City universe. I don't know if you guys have read Astro City at all, but uh, it's no, really I good. I, I hardly recommend it. Um, but anyway, the junk man basically uh, pulls off this this great series of crimes, makes a ton of money, and gets away with it. And you would think, wow, he's lived like the supervillain's dream. He, he, he scored all this cash. He's in, you know, Buenos Aires in a non-extraditable area, you know. He, he's a multimillionaire several times over from his crimes. And yet something keeps gnawing at him, something keeps eating at him. And he realizes that it isn't just enough for him to, you know, get the money and run, which, you know, you think would be enough for any, any villain. He wants the recognition. He wants to be the one who put down Jack in the Box and who... You know, he made he made it out in the story. He makes it out with his money, but it's not clear that it's him. You know, that did it. He doesn't get the uh, the recognition for his crime, but he realizes that that is uh, more important to him than the cash and getting away. And goes back, pulls another crime, and gets and gets caught by Jack in the Box. So we find like the the the, hub, the hubris that we see in like a, a Luthor or Doctor Savannah or something um, in the Junk Man. Basically, uh, you know. You, he pulls off what you'd think would be any supervillain's dream, you know, to get away with the money and to, uh, you know, elude the superhero. But it turns out not to be enough for him because he just, he, he needs the recognition of having bested his foe. So those are my right. three. And I would like to go around the horn with you guys and uh, name, if you would like, some of your uh, lamest villains that you remember. I would like to personally put out a Spider-Man villain that has not been redone uh, named the Kangaroo. He was basically a guy with a bowl, a bald guy, or a blonde guy with a bowl haircut similar to He-Man's. Uh, he wore a brown vest, like a hairy brown vest, and uh, like brown wrestling pants and boots. And his uh, superpower was that he could jump very high. So, and uh, I can't, I don't have the issue. So I don't have the issue number of Spider-Man here in front of me. But this is a real villain from Marvel, and you can look it up. Did he wear boxing gloves? No, he did not. <laughs> No, he did not. <laughs> I'll go my lame villain, and this is something back when I was, I kind of got tapped um, on and off in the in the mid '80s when Greenwald was writing, and they they had this thing running through the the cat books and even some of the other books, most of the street level. I think it I think it even showed up in Daredevil, Spider Man, 
maybe Power Man and Iron Fist at the time, possibly, um, but it was big in cast. The villain was called Scourge. And oh, yeah, Scourge. The whole thing, Scourge of the Underworld. And every time he'd kill somebody, he would yell out, Justice is, justice is served. And so the whole thing, this whole mystery of who was Scourge, you know, it, it, it had to be somebody big. But when you really thought about it, all he did was kill, like, Z-list villains. Like, that's all he did. Like, there was never anything... It was, all, it was all hyped up to be this big mystery, but he never really killed anybody of consequence. And um, I've opened a book, and I'll talk about this a little later, because it was pretty cool that Wizard put out, but um, it has his death count, Scourge's death count from uh, May of 85 to August of 86. And he told out villains like The Enforcer, Miracle Man, Hate Monger, Megatech, The Melter, Titania, Basilisk, The Human Fly, Death Adder, Blue Streak, The Wraith, Jaguar, The Mirage, Hellraiser, Shellshock, Birdman, Cyclone, The Ringer, Turner D. Century, The Grappler, <laughs> The Cheetah, The Vamp, Commander Kraken, Lisa, Steeplejack, Mindwave, Rapier, and The Hijacker. And he happened to go into this club in the story at one point. Um, it was basically like a bar where, all, where criminals catered to. And he went in there and killed 18 of them all in one shot. And one of them got away and kind of basically told Cap because he was scared of, you know, this guy. And Cap was finally able to track him down. And, uh, and as Cap was kind of bringing him in, he was killed in, in, by an unseen assailant. And the unseen assailant shouted, justice is served, and vanished. But it turns out the guy that was actually the scourge that was captured was like a complete nobody. I mean, the guy was like, you, know, you kept thinking the way they're hyping this, there's got to be somebody big, somebody that you know. And he was like a complete and utter nobody. Uh, so it was like, it, it was it was so much ado about nothing, uh, but it was just kind of funny how you, you know I remember talking with my friends at the time like who Scourge was and, and you know they you know talk about the Scourge of the Underworld and and, uh, and it was just really really lame. I'm gonna go with a three way tie for the DCU lame villains. Number one is Ding Dong Daddy, <laughs> the Demon Drag Racer from the Teen Titans. Uh, what a moron! I'll, he. <laughs> actually resurfaced for a little bit in the uh, Teen Titans cartoon series. The next one is the Fiddler, who got blown away in Villains United from Mockingbird when he didn't fulfill his part of the task in what would later become the Secret Six. And last one is Sonar, an old Green Lantern villain. He's kind of dressed up like uh, he fancies himself to be a reject from the cast of The Music Man. So um, I'd have to go with those three. It's hard to top cheesiness in the DC universe other than maybe like the Bug-Eyed Bandit or, I don't know, uh, Mastodon. But there's a special place in my heart for uh, Simon, whose brain is encased in a jar, on his very head. So we got a lot, lot to pull from. But Simon was pretty cool, though. He had some good lines in the original Crisis. And like a lot of the villains, strangely enough, they blew him away in Salvation Run last year. I don't have a big history to work with, but I think Stilt Man is pretty lame. And the, he's so corny, John. They made uh, a hero clicks out of him. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty. He's pretty lame. And there was um, when they relaunched Punisher last time, not the most recent time with Rick Remender. The time before that, the War Zone. Uh, they had uh, they had a scene where the, a, a C list or D list villain died. And there was, like, a funeral service for him at, like, a villain bar. And there was all of these D-list terrible villains at the service. And Punisher came and, like, killed them all. So that was cool. 
Russ reminded me of that with that other scene that he was talking about, about how uh, all those guys were killed in one shot. But I think Stiltman was there. I don't know. I, he might have got out alive. And I don't buy the owl. Uh, Leyland Owlsy. <laughs> they, they use him a lot yeah. as Daredevil, especially recently. Uh, he's just been like hired by Kingpin to like figure something out. And I just don't buy it. He, his last name is Owlsy. He's the owl. He doesn't have any powers. He's got like big wolverine hair. You know, I just I know owls are predators and everything, but it just doesn't uh it's not very intimidating. He has the power of Ernest Borgnine's eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, he doesn't do I don't know. He probably has a power that I'm not just aware of or whatever, but he's just lame and I don't get Leland Owlsy. He's able to attack mice at night. Yeah. <laughs> Who? Yeah, um, I know uh, Kurt Busiek is a big fan, of, like a Marvel head, and, and a lot of the same ways that like Mark Wade is a big uh, you know, DC historian. And when he was uh, doing Thunderbolts, he would love to wh- to whip out the the, the cheesy uh, C and D level villains. I remember in uh, I think it was Thunderbolts fifty, he had like a fifty member version of the Masters of Evil. And if you ever want a nice list of good C or D list Marvel villains, grab that because I mean it had like Man Killer and um. Um, and Lamprey, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but it, it's just really funny when um, they, you see these like cheesy, cheesy villains like Rocket Racer uh, reinterpreted and actually, you know, turn into a cool character. Awesome. Well, I think I'm up. I'm going to go with a kind of like subset, subgenre of supervillains, and I'm going to be talking about mad scientists. So, gentlemen, please feel free to chime in. You have to start with scientists, and then. You get to the mad scientists that way. So a lot of people kind of look at some of the early myths uh, of legend as kind of like the, the beginnings or rumblings of mad scientists, um, not just in comics but in pop culture. And a lot of people look to uh, Daedalus, who is the father of Icarus, who you know had wings and flew you know very, very close to the sun and fell as kind of an, an archetype, if not an architect, of being a mad scientist. He also, you know, created the labyrinth, which to me screams Riddler all over it. But this really kind of uh, started getting steam in pop culture with Dr. Frankenstein and also with, you know, fantasy books going from, you know, Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels to, you know, just about anything. If you take a look at some old, you know, black and whites like Fritz Lang's Metropolis, you know, there's a silent movie that also has a scientist gone wrong, Rotwang, who more or less brings the whole city of Metropolis to life. So it's kind of like a god in the machine, not deus ex machina, but literally life comes from these machines and this obsession with science. I think the important thing to remember is you got to tell the difference between an evil genius and a mad scientist. Like I, I look at Dr. Doom as an, as, as an evil genius. I mean, I know there's like we were talking about with cap, uh, you know, he's got the, the time travel platform and, and whatnot, but you know, I, I picture the whole, you know, classic Warner Brothers animation mad scientist with, you know, the beakers and test tubes and crazy colors, uh, you know, flowing around, you know, the laboratory. That's that's kind of like the safe bet, I think. And, you know, after Frankenstein was published and whatnot, that kind of transferred over how many, you know, years and years and years up to, you know, post-World War II in America, where that kind of uh, really hit the stride with, you know, uh, strange characters who were... More experimenters, perhaps, than they were scientists, and that was probably a result of, you know, Mengele and any of the other Nazis, you know, f- that 
survived, escaped, or got caught from World War II. So I'm going to kind of break this into two categories, just straight up general uh, DC mad scientists and then Batman mad scientists. And I'm going to start with Dr. Savannah. That is Bodog Savannah, probably the most awesome middle name in all of comicdom. It's definitely uh, familiar to those who are fans of Captain Marvel. And uh, as a person in the Fawcett Comics library, he was actually inactive for about 20 years from the 50s until the 70s because of the lawsuit between um, National and Fawcett Comics. So he's the typical kind of like uh, midgetized Mad Hatter type with these, you know, huge Coke bottle glasses in. With Mr. Mind and the rest of the Monster Society, you know, attempts to tackle, you know, Captain Marvel over and over and over again. And probably um, one of his shining moments was in, in the post-crisis era, era, I'll say, was issues 13 through 15 of The Outsiders. Um, this was a pretty cool run. Tom Rennie had art duties on this. And I really liked it because um, Savannah kind of reformed the, um, the, fierce, the, the Fearsome Five. And so he got to work with guys like Simon, Mammoth, Jinx, and he actually even killed Gizmo. So he tried to create this weapon called the Ludite, which would basically render all technology completely inept and, and, and neuter technology off of the face of the earth. So everybody would basically live in cabins and have giant beards and, and whatnot. So that was kind of like a really wild shock. And probably my favorite Savannah moment was um, in 52 when uh, him and his family were reintroduced into the DCU and he cut the giant turkey for Thanksgiving in half with a chainsaw because I guess that's just, you know, polite company in the uh, Savannah household. But um, he's got kind of like an on-again, off-again relationship with Mr. Mind, the uh, Venetian worm, which is pretty cool. Does anybody have any mad scientist stories or what not to regale us with? I like, um, I actually just watched Monsters vs. Aliens. <laughs> and there's an awesome mad scientist in Monsters vs. Aliens because he's a bug. He's a he's a bug that was like transformed into a brilliant bug with like a giant brain and he's a mad scientist so it's totally like 50s you know the fly you know all of the old monster movie stereotypes tied into one he's probably my new favorite mad scientist mine would probably be brain from Pinky and the Brain <laughs> yes <laughs> good choice <laughs> What are we going to do tonight? <laughs> Same thing we do every night. Don't forget Dexter. Yeah, Dexter's right. Laboratory. Dexter's Laboratory, not the Showtime show. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's a serial killer. That's a whole other kind of podcast. But uh, still yeah. another villain, too, though. I like Dexter. This is a pretty good one, Jim. And uh, Dr. Gargunza from uh, Miracle Man, who's basically uh, another version of Dr. Savannah, only a Nazi. Yeah, you know, like you mentioned, Dexter, there's such a thing as the inverse of a mad scientist, which could be, you know, like the absent-minded professor or kind of like the sinister scientist, like Dr. Niles Calder from the Doom Patrol run when he just killed everyone. <laughs> or um, you've got, uh, what's his name, Will Magnus of the uh, Metal Men fame. And, you know, he's definitely a mad scientist, only... You know, as you found out in 52, you know, he kind of like was, was a twist on the mad scientist, but, but for the forces of good. And, you know, his, his mentor, Dr. T.O. Morrow, I mean, who better than anyone? You know, he made the Red Tornado. He now's 
running around with uh, the red volcano and the red torpedo and whatnot in, in the new miniseries. So you've kind of got like twists on an old an old classic or an old favorite. That's kind of uh, important to keep in mind. But I think maybe more than anyone in the DCU, Batman's probably had uh, his a lion's share of dealing with uh, supervillains who are also mad scientists. So like I know it's easy to put in the Mad Hatter and the Scarecrow into this category, but you know they were professors and tech specialists and whatnot. But they seem to be more gimmicks and um, freaks than they are scientists, first and foremost. Like, science is a means to an end for them to be, you know, crazy. But I, I think in the name of science, there are three kind of big names that stick out, which, number one is Professor Milo, and you guys are probably familiar with Professor Milo from um, Batman the Animated Series. This is the dude who uh, would, you know, unlike Bob Barker, did not have his pets, uh, pet spayed or neutered. He was uh, trying to, you know, infect everyone with, uh, you know, this crazy, ridiculous serum that would turn people into cat people and, you know, gorillas into gorilla people. He's kind of a weird one. And he actually resurfaced right around Batman R.I.P. And actually, his gas that he had once gassed Batman with actually inspired Bats to create the Zuranar personality from way back when. So Milo was pretty crazy. Um, he was also in 52. And probably the most notable is uh, Dr. Hugo Strange. And every time I think of him, I, I picture the Brian Bolin cover image in my head with those ridiculously um, frayed mutton chops and that glassy smile and just kind of menacing reflective glasses and lenses. Hugo Strange was just kind of like the, the typical uh, Savannah, I guess if you want to call that, supervillain. And after, in, after the original crisis... Uh, he he just kind of like begins to exercise like a madman, and this is in Matt Wagner's Batman and the Monster Men. If you've read that um, original graphic novel, and like he he basically trains himself as uh, to be as perfect as as he can, so that he can be a physical threat to Batman as well. But oh wait, you're balding, you're you know kind of uh, hunched over, and well, you're kind of a freak of nature. So you know he he plays kind of like mind games and. He kind of uses the whole, I guess, the classic test subjects, um, and and turns uh, you know these subjects into monster men. So that's a really you know kind of a neat way. I mean, you know, with all the training and physical perfection, he's really kind of looked at as kind of like an opposite to um, in contrast to Batman in that story. Um, you know, he's worked with uh, you know the Scarecrow and stuff and you know they turn their backs on each other and uh, Doug Monk's run I think that was called that was either called Prey or Terror it was one of those two but yeah Doctor Strange uh, in you know and they're sure to call him Doctor Hugo Strange so there's no copyright silliness with Marvel but uh, he probably had one of the coolest Batman animated series episodes which was called The Strange Secret of Bruce Wayne and um, he you know, invited all of Gotham's wealthiest folks to this crazy, like, hypnopedium that they all kind of, like, went under, uh, I, I don't know if you want to call it regressive uh, uh, therapy or regressive hypnotic therapy, and, you know, more or less, like, in the comics, found out, uh, you know, that Bruce was really Batman and Batman was really Bruce and vice versa. He was last seen in Gotham Underground and also in Salvation Run, which, you know, to, to no true avail or to, to, of no real consequence. So he was just kind of glossed over. But uh, just a kind of a cool guy nonetheless and definitely 
I would even say it's sometimes more than the other villains, uh, the psycho, the psychological terror um, to Batman's uh, psyche more than some of the other villains in the past. They've got a, a really cool, isn't it a DC Direct figure, Adam? You've probably seen it, the Hugo Strange Batman yep. figure. That is, it's really, you know, I'm not, there's very few of them, I guess, that really catch my eye as, you know, I'm in the comic shop or whatever, but that's always one that when I see it, I'm always like, that really looks cool. Yeah, that was that was released, Russ, with um, a Two Face, and it was released with a Two Face, but that was like the um, the DC Comic Classics Brian Bolin line, right? So that was a pretty cool one, and um, you know they're kind of doing the same thing with the history of the DC Universe with uh, the Perez action figures line right now, but yeah, um, yeah that, that's a that's a pretty strange one. I I think if I ever got a sketch from Brian Bolin, it would either be Egg Fu from his Wonder Woman cover or Doctor Strange. Because he's just kind of a crazy guy altogether. Specify the size. Who is the man bat? He's a mad scientist, isn't he? Okay. Dr. Dr. Kirk Langstrom. I don't think he's a mad scientist, though. He's kind of more the accidental type. Like like, uh, Dr. Kirk Connors, the lizard. You know, he's trying to come up with something that would be helpful and then ended up being a horrible mutated freak. Yeah, he's kind of like another flip on the mad scientist thing, which is kind of like, just like Daredevil had the accident, John. You know, Kirk Langstrom had the very same thing. But, you know, it's like in the name of science, you know, he puts himself through all these ridiculous, you know, tests and whatnot to, uh, you know, test the effect of this extract that, that he's made. So, you know, he has, you know, bat sonar. He has all these ridiculous things. And, of course, you know, sort of Damocles hanging above his head is the safety of his wife. And, you know, his family and whatnot. So, um, you know, he was even seen part of the secret society at different points. There's no, like, real true continuity, reach out and touch someone, amazing man bat story. But he's definitely a pop-up, you know, down the line. I mean, he's definitely a test, you know, uh, for Batman. And I always enjoyed watching the animated series when they tossed him in because there were some just amazing animation sequences when Kevin Conroy's Batman would grapple to uh, the man bat's foot or wing or something, and then they would just fly around the Gotham rooftops together. That was, you know, more of a spectacle. And I can't really think of too many similarities other than, other than it's just Batman spelled backwards. But um, it's pretty cool yeah. nonetheless. And the reason I picked these three all together is that on one of the last episodes of Justice League Unlimited, Kirk Langstrom, Professor Milo, and Hugo Strange were all present at the Cadmus Project with Amanda Waller and General Eiling. So it's like everyone that was kind of commonplace back in Batman the Animated Series came back for those last few episodes. And it was just one scene in, you know, one of the, whatchamacallit, government control, Dr. Strangelove meeting, who was another mad scientist, meeting areas that they had in there. And Dr. Milo was the one who reanimated slash re-released Doomsday and got killed for it. So I thought those three kind of had a really neat connection with the animated series and JLU. And it's just, Batman has a lot of scientists up against him. If you look at it, I guess Superman has the pinnacle, which would be Lex Luthor. And right now, in Adventure Comics, they've got Luthor being a scientist again under the auspices of General Lane, but working for and with Brainiac, which I guess is the extraterrestrial pinnacle of, of being a mad scientist. Yeah, they are, they're doing an upcoming arc of Superman-Batman that actually has Man-Bat and Bizarro in it. So that'll be interesting. And they are fighting 
Black Lantern, Solomon Grundy, which is even crazier. <laughs> okay, so I think it's my turn. I decided to go with the more important Daredevil villains, just because it's what I'm most familiar with. And getting back into comics in the last six or seven years, uh, I've probably dove into Daredevil uh, deeper than any other title. So I'm going to start with the Kingpin. Kingpin's a pretty cool character. He actually originated in The Amazing Spider-Man number 50. So he was originally a Spider-Man villain. And I haven't read a lot of these old Spider-Man issues, but from what I've seen and from what I understand, Kingpin was a much different type of character than he is now. He, he, was, he was drawn more as like a giant, fat, you know, blob type of guy that was just kind of like pointing his minions around to do all his dirty work, you know, and he, and he wasn't a very active character himself. He was just always with the suit and the, uh, you know, the cane and the cigar. And he was kind of the man behind uh, all the crime stuff, but he never really got his hands dirty. Somewhere along the way, he switched over to becoming a main daredevil villain. And, and, and a lot of it, things changed for the Kingpin's persona. He became a much more physical presence they gave him they, they never mentioned him having any powers but he definitely had like above average human strength and he'd be seen doing more physical tasks you know he'd get in tussles with heroes and you know he'd, he'd choke people out and he'd throw bodies around um so they definitely made him a more physical presence uh, for for the daredevil run um that he was in he was, he was he had a big part in a lot of uh, storylines for Daredevil that were pretty huge. He um he actually found the the secret identity of Matt Murdock out for a while. So th that was a huge story run where he had to, you know, Daredevil had to have people masquerade as him so he could show up in, in two places at once, so to speak, so that he could prove Kingpin wrong. Kingpin was always behind all of the big criminal organization stuff that was going on in Hell's Kitchen. And one, one thing that was cool about him for me was he, he was never afraid to take on other bad guys. You know, there are tons of stories where other crime lords or organizations would try to move into Daredevil's um, into Kingpin's territory. And he would always go head to head with them. And often Matt Murdock would have to stop the two sides from destroying, you know, the city in their drug war or whatever's going on. Another big story for Kingpin recently um, was the whole Spider-Man One More Day scenario. Kingpin had actually ordered the hit, uh, which ended up killing Aunt May. So that was a pretty interesting uh, scenario. They had Kingpin th was thrown in jail and Peter found out that, uh, you know, he was the one responsible for the shot that had killed Aunt May or had hurt Aunt May at that time. And Peter came into jail and fought Kingpin uh, in jail, which was a pretty great scene. And that's not the first time that had happened either. Kingpin had been in jail with Matt Murdock at one time, and they had a team up together to get out. Kingpin, um, you were talking about when he found out that he was Matt Murdock. That was in uh, Daredevil 227 at the beginning of the uh, Born Again uh, storyline, which is one of my all-time favorite, not only Daredevil storylines, but comic book storylines of all time, and it just really shows the, the dichotomy of the Kingpin, who was the planner and the master planner, and, and wants to have control over everything, and Matt Murdock, who he just, he literally breaks down both uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, I mean, if, if you haven't read Born Again, that's comic, that's Graphic Novels 101, listeners, you really need to get out there and read it, because that's one of the best Daredevil stories ever done, Frank Miller, 
David Mazzucchelli. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And I remember that one issue you're talking about, Johnny, where um, there's a, like this homicidal maniac that Kingpin uh, springs out of prison and puts in a Daredevil costume and then drops in Hell's Kitchen to try to like discredit Daredevil. Right. And uh, um, and that one issue, uh, like right at the climax of Born Again with uh, um, Matt Murdock, he's like handcuffed in a, in a taxi being driven off a pier sinking into the East River. And that's how they ended that issue. And I just remember reading that as a kid and just like, ah, I need next month now, you know. <laughs> just uh, such good storytelling. Frank Miller, you know, at his best, Mazzucchelli art, and, and, you know, really, really defining for the kingpin in a lot of ways. Even down to the purple pinstripe pants that he, uh, Kingpin wears an awful lot. You've got the uh, DC Universe counterpart, which would be Tobias Whale, which is, uh, get ready, a black albino dude who uh, walks around with a harpoon. Uh, awesome. <laughs> He's the uh, leader of the 100 and was in Gotham Underground most prominently, probably the biggest storyline he's been a part of, and um, also in Black Lightning uh, Year One as... Um, kind of set up against old Black Lightning over there. So um, an interesting one, but definitely like the huge kind of like chubbo man myth, uh, king, well, kingpin of the gang, the hundred way back in the day. I look, you know, John, you were talking about um, the Spider-Man story where, he, you know, Peter goes into prison and goes one-on-one. I mean, say what you want about how one more day ended, but, the way JMS wrote that whole sequence was just awesome. I mean, the the dialogue that Peter, when they when the two of them were just going at it, that was just it was just really really good. Did he know that Peter was Spider Man, or how did that work? Oh yeah, yeah. And Peter, I think, fought him as Peter, right? I think that was like the yep. big punchline. He he came into the jail and he took off the Spider Man mask and said, you know, you're fighting Peter Parker, not Spider Man. Yeah. Which was, yeah, was pretty cool. The, the whole concept was, yeah, Spider-Man can't kill somebody or, you know, can't be this brutal, but I can't, you know, basically Peter can't. So, you know, he just didn't want there to be any misunderstanding about, you know, who, you know, who whooped him. That might have even been back in black, I think, rather than one more day. Yeah, you know what, you're right. You're right, that, that would have been back in black. Right, that's when they were doing the whole darker, meaner Spider-Man. Right. Right, right, right. But yet in New Avengers, he was still cracking jokes like crazy, so they just couldn't sync up the titles, but... Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I was getting ahead of yeah. myself. Yeah, Bendis is, like, rebuilding of Kingpin, too, and bringing him back and making him, you know, Murdoch's um, adversary again. It was really well done. I love those issues where, you know, Kingpin is basically fighting his way back to where he was um, after having everything taken away from him. And then that scene... So um, I don't know the actual issue number, but it was during Bendis and Malev's run where Daredevil just beats the crap out of Kingpin and, like, looks at all the, the mobsters that are watching, and he's like, I'm the Kingpin now. Do you understand? You know? Yeah. Great, yeah, that was great a good issue. Going. That was a good issue. Also, um, his wife plays a really big part in... Vanessa. Uh, in, the, in the business, right? Uh, and she was also in the old uh, 90s cartoon as well. Yeah, um, I was kind of getting up to the, the current state of Kingpin. Yeah, Vanessa is kind of uh, always chirping in his ear. And, and they've they made her more of an issue recently uh, when she died, actually. Um, and her dying wish was that Kingpin's 
war with Daredevil would end. And so Daredevil kind of made a deal. Matt Murdock made a deal that he would represent Kingpin um, in court to get him off. And then to respect Vanessa's wishes, then Kingpin would leave the country. So that's how it went down. And Kingpin was gone for a long period of time. And, and just now in Return of the King, which was a story arc that um, just ended, I guess, we find out where Kingpin has been all this time. And I won't spoil that, but uh, he's back and, you know, he's making it look like he's a buddy of Daredevil now, but he's actually just using Matt Murdock to, um, you know, to get what he wants, which I'm going to get to how that ends when I do the hand, which I'm going to cover quickly. So that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about for Kingpin. Um, I, I will get into where he's at now when I move on a little bit, but I've always liked him because of his gritty nature he's got that business-like attitude you know he doesn't accept any failure you can always catch kingpin you know having guys killed that failed on a job for him um again he's not afraid to go up against other villains that are moving into his territory um and he's always kind of had this respect thing with daredevil they both kind of occupy the same space and you know even though daredevil's always trying to bring him down uh, there is a mutual respect there be- between the two characters. And one thing I wanted to put out to you guys was, how did you... Well, first of all, have you guys seen the movie, the um, the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie? Yes. Yeah, yes. I saw it. Jeez. <laughs> um, first of all, I think it's very underrated, and the, the director's cut is a thousand times better than the theatrical cut, but that's not even... That's for another day. What I wanted to ask was, what did you think about them just kind of switching gears and making Kingpin Michael Clark Duncan, you, you know, it, w- it was kind of a bold move. I mean, he's not a black character, so to have a black actor play him and kind of change the whole makeup of the character. Well, I mean, there's not many giant, fat, white guys that could, you know, beat anybody up for reals, you know? I mean, there's <laughs> that doesn't really work, so I think uh, he, you know, dude, Michael, Michael Clark Duncan, brother is built. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, he's just a tank. So I'm cool with it. He was, you know, he did what he could with what he had. And despite the crazy uh, Daredevil holographic vision or whatever, I thought it was a pretty, you know, he was all right. He was, he was uh, a ton better than Bullseye, I think, you know, than which, which McCall, Colin Farrell did. So, yeah, I'll give it to him. He did all right. All I remember I, about that movie was Jennifer Garner, so I passed. <laughs> I, I thought it was, uh, I, I thought it was a great choice. Not to sound too agreeable with everything, but you need somebody that's big and imposing, um, and that's definitely Michael Clark Duncan. And you know, you put him in the suit, put him in the tux, you, you know, and and you give him that cane, and he just—I mean, to me, it just—he spelled, you know, kingpin. I mean, he—I—I I, I thought it was a great choice. Um, it, it made it, you know, the fight at the end that they had a lot more. Uh, a lot more realistic and a lot, um, I, I don't know, I just, I just think, I, I think it was a good choice other than, you know, big fat white guy. Um, because the way I've always kind of heard Kingpin described or have him been described is that it's not, it's not really fat, that, you know, it's, it's solid. You know, he, he may, he may appear fat, but, you know, underneath the, underneath the skin, it's just solid muscle from, you know, basically from top to bottom. A little tough to pull that off you know, on the big screen. So I, I, I think to have such an imposing figure play that character 
Um, and the way they did it was, was, a, was a good move. Okay, so... Oh, I uh, just to backtrack a little bit. I, I thought it was great too. I just um, it, it was kind of like a, I guess a high risk, high reward choice to to go that route. But I thought it I thought it worked out pretty well. Um, I like the movie and I like Bullseye in it too. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to that. So um, I will now. Bullseye is my next choice. Bullseye's first appearance is Daredevil 131. First of all, the coolest thing to me about Bullseye is that he doesn't have an origin yet. His origin has been told vaguely in a few different series. In the in the Electra series, they touched on the fact that um, he was recruited for the NSA and some other organizations like the Contras in Nicaragua. He, and he, you know, he's obviously an expert marksman. There's a origin that says that he was a baseball player in high school, uh, a pitcher, obviously that could you know hit any spot with any pitch. Um, and then a player mocked him, and so he killed like the next three batters by hitting them in the head. So there's been some kind of goofy things, and and there was a mini series in I think nine, no I'm gonna say 2004. Um, it was a Daniel Way mini series called um, Bullseye's Greatest Hits, and he it, it's kind of like a Hannibal Lecter scene. They have Bullseye, uh, you know, the FBI has Bullseye in custody. And he's kind of leading them along to help them solve this other crime. Uh, and it turns out that Bullseye is actually the one who committed the crime. But he tells these FBI agents his story as the miniseries goes on. There'll be little flashbacks that clues everybody into what's going on with Bullseye. And he tells them in the last issue that he was lying the whole time. So they basically they basically erased everything that they built in that miniseries as far as his backstory. He's gone by the name Lester, some other names, but nothing's been given any weight. His real origin hasn't been uh, hasn't been given any weight. His big moment uh, that really brought him into the forefront was Daredevil 181, which is when he kills Elektra. So that really brought him in as like the psycho killer. He was a little bit of a, not a joke before that, but he was kind of like a hired guy, um, usually hired by Kingpin to try to take out Daredevil or to do some other dirty work for him. Um, again, he had some goofy kind of origin elements and stuff. And um, that that moment in 181 when he kills Elektra is what really brought him into the forefront as the... Um, as the big villain for Daredevil, because now since then Daredevil has had this vendetta with Bullseye, uh, because Elektra was his love at the time. So now he's always had this thing for Daredevil for Bullseye. Kind of plays into what we were saying before about taking a character just a one-shot gimmick and then turning him around and making him a real, you know, badass like Bullseye is now. He's sent to assassinate the Red Skull actually by Kingpin. Kingpin had some kind of run-in with Crossbones, who's a character that we've been talking about now with, uh, with Captain America in, in the Brubaker stuff. And uh, Bullseye was sent to kill the Red Skull as retribution. Um, but of course he failed, and uh, I think Red Skull ended up just having like a one-on-one fist fight with Kingpin, which is pretty cool. So recently I've been really enjoying the Bullseye stuff, because with, with Dark Reign, I guess I should backtrack, he, he's been in the Thunderbolts all this time. Uh, he was recruited by Tony Stark and the new Thunderbolts to kind of rein in the unregistered heroes and everything. But more recently, he's been part of Norman Osborn's Dark Avengers as a Hawkeye character. 
which really, when you think of it, it's amazing that Hawkeye and Bullseye haven't either crossed paths or switched identities ever before because they're basically the same character. You know, the sharpshooters, they never miss the perfect aim. Right, that's just like a Green Arrow, Green Arrow and uh, Merlin. They've kind of just, you know, met a little, you know, a couple issues back in Mike Norton's Green Arrow run. So that's kind of a fear, fearful symmetry going on right there, too. Yeah. And Dawkins loves, loves, it's like his mission in life to jack with, with Bullseye in the, in the Dark Avenger stuff. Um, at least what I've read in Dark Wolverine. It's just like his mission in life is to, is to get at, at Bullseye. Yeah, it's been... It- Dark Reign has been great for Bullseye because he, he's put into this Avengers group with Norman Osborn, and Norman's whole thing is you're going to do the dirty work, but you're going to pretend that you're the Avengers, so he can't let loose. And he's a maniac. He's absolutely out of his mind. He just wants to kill. Uh, you know, that's his way to solve any problem is just kill, and he obviously can't do that. So there's a lot of comical moments as they try to keep him reined in. One part that I'll talk about that's really cool, they did a Dark Reign Bullseye miniseries. And just to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that's going on, Bullseye's patrolling around in the Hawkman suit, Hawkeye, excuse me, in the Hawkeye suit. And he sees a woman in a parking garage uh, getting attacked. So he shoots a couple of arrows and he pins the mugger to a van. So, you know, picture the mugger trapped up against the van in the crucifix pose, you know, with one arrow through each hand. And he swoops down, and the lady is very thankful. Oh, you know, you saved my life. My son loves the Avengers. Can you, uh, the Avengers, can you sign this for me, you know, for an autograph? So he takes the pen, stabs the lady through the eye, and kills her. Now the, now the mugger who's pinned to the van is screaming for his life that Bullseye is crazy. So Bullseye starts the van and drives it off the parking garage. <laughs> and and that's, that's the kind of stuff uh, that's been going on with all of the dark rain and, and him parading as, as Hawkeye and everything. And it's really been a good time. And I really... I liked his movie portrayal. I thought Colin Fowler was all right because if if you knew the character, that's kind of the they stayed true to it. You know, he's a nut. And yeah, maybe they went a little bit overboard with him flicking the peanut on the airplane and like choking the lady with it. Uh, but I thought it was pretty true. I I thought it was a decent portrayal of him. And he's one of my favorite villains right now just because of all this stuff that's going on. I liked him in the Thunderbolts and like I said I I like what they have going on with him now. And I'm sure he'll get back to, you know, Daredevil and him will lock up again one day. And in the Dark Reign Electra series that was just out, you know, he was begging to go back after Electra because he wanted to kill her again. Because he had, you know, killed the Electra originally, but it was a scroll, and now she's back. So he wants to kill her again. So that's been fun, too. It sounds like he's got kind of like a, um, a dead shot uh, death wish. But the skills of Deathstroke and like the kind of mysterious origin that Sabretooth has kind of entertained over the last couple of years. So, I mean, he's definitely good to go. I mean, I enjoyed the heck out of him on the Bendis uh, Daredevil run. So, yeah, I'll, I'll have to throw the hat in and agree with you on that one totally. There was that great Frank Miller issue, too, where uh, Bullseye is uh, hooked up to IVs and is in intensive care in a hospital. And Daredevil is standing by his bed and he plays Russian roulette with Bullseye. And that's the entire issue. And it sounds like a nothing issue. It sounds like, you know, how can you make a whole 
comic out of that, but but Frank Miller totally does. Um, and it's, it's kind of like in the aftermath of him killing Elektra, like he said. I mean, plus he killed Karen Page, who was another one of Daredevil's, you know, early loves. So, I mean, it's just a, you know, it's a personal vendetta. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. It's it's definitely it's the Daredevil character that you can always go back to. You know, they're gonna they're gonna run him around with Kingpin, and they're gonna do some things with the hand, which uh, which I'm gonna get to in a second. But it always goes back to Bullseye. I mean, Bullseye would make anytime Bullseye shows up, Daredevil stops cold, and there's that moment of like, uh oh, what's gonna happen now? So that's really cool. So I just wanted to talk about the hand quickly because when we did a ton of Hydra stuff with the Iron Fist book. Well, first of all, John, you can talk to the hand. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The hand is like the really cool uh, ninja horde that uh, always ends up going up against Bullseye. And it goes back to that kind of like Eastern influence that we were talking about during the Iron Fist stuff. They have there's this crazy code that they have. And they're evil ninjas. And the the cool thing about the hand is that they program their members, and it's like extremely difficult to break pro- programming. Um, so like once you're in the hand, you're like in the hand for life. I found a list of like known people to break the hand programming, and it's like Electra and Wolverine. Uh, I don't think anyone else that has been in the hand has been able to get out, which I'm sure is not major characters, but. Uh, Wolverine and Elektra were able to get their way out. And the reason I wanted to talk about the hand is, um, spoiler alert for Daredevil 500, um, there was a great storyline where we found out that the Kingpin's actual motive was that he wanted to run the hand. Uh, and he knew by killing this master of the hand that he could be in control of it. And in a strange twist of events where Matt Murdock has now felt that he's pretty much lost everything with his with Mila, his wife, and uh, Dakota North, who he kind of had a fling with and blew that. And like all these other people we've been talking about, you know, he lost Elektra, he lost Karen Page. I mean, Daredevil has been in a 30-year spiral of bad events happening to him. Uh, well, so, you know, in fairness, he can't see what's coming at him, so. <laughs> yeah. And uh, boom, boom. Yeah. So in a, in a really cool twist of events in Daredevil 500, Matt Murdock has actually taken over the hand. So he is the leader of the evil hand ninja organization. And I'm assuming it's his move to make it right. Because in the issue, they go back and talk about how the motives of the hand have changed. And they were supposed to be like a protective organization originally, and it's kind of gone awry and they ended up being assassins instead of, you know, they've lost their way kind of thing. So apparently Matt Murdoch's going to spend these next couple of arcs trying to figure out how he can straighten out this killer ninja organization, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Another cool group like aim that we talked about with cap and, Hydra that we talked about with Iron Fist. I remember getting a bunch of random hand and uh, scrolls and uh, aim agents and Hydra agents when I was, you know, back in the days of, you know, hero clicks and stuff like that. But um, I really enjoyed it, you know? Yeah, it's cool. It, it brings that, you know, the whole ninja aspect is, brings a little coolness and mystery to it. You know, they're not just uh, soldiers or, or, you know, SWAT team type guys. They're, 
you know, they're ninjas. So they always have that element of like popping up when you, you know, you can't see them, you can't hear them. And Electra has been in control of the hand in the past and some other cool characters. I think Russ, I think Psylocke, wasn't she a part of the hand for a while or she was abducted by them or something? Yeah. I'm trying to think it, it was, yeah, back when Jim Lee was on, on Canny and they, yeah, they kind of mind wiped Psylocke. And I think I'm, I can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, I think it was affiliated the guy at the, at the time was either the leader of the hand or, or like a big wig in the hand um, and had, that's kind of what, you know, when she was turned, her consciousness was kind of pulled out of her British body and put in the, the Japanese body. She was kind of messed up from uh, Spiral. It was kind of during the act of vengeance stuff and Spiral was working with, um, and I, I can't from the life of the character, but yeah, I, I, I believe you are correct. Cool. So that's my little daredevil run down and I guess it's funny that uh, all three of the ones that you mentioned were like the cornerstones of the Frank Miller run I mean the hand came after Daredevil when uh, you know Elektra didn't do the, the killing bullseye killed Elektra and then Kingpin was behind it all it's, uh, it's kind of cool that you know when they revitalized Daredevil and made him like less of a Spider-Man ripoff and less of a goofy character that these are the villains that not only you know established him as like more of a noir character but these are still the villains that are figuring very heavily in Matt Murdock's life definitely I mean it's no surprise to me I mean I've I have my Frank Miller Daredevil omnibus I have my Frank Miller Daredevil omnibus companion <laughs> and everything from Kevin Smith through current so that's really all I know that's cool. Hey, we got a couple forum comments before we um, kind of do a rehash and summary conclusion and whatnot. Uh, Daryl types in, some of my favorite villains have been the villains who have powers of the nemesis. They always fight like Sinestro, who is the nemesis, of course, of Hal Jordan. Some other villains I like are Venom, before he was uh, overused, and Bullseye. There you go, John, who uh, is a really gritty hero you love to hate also. Daryl likes uh, Deathstroke, especially when he first challenged the Titans and Professor Zoom. Make sure to check out Comic Book Roadshow. And Daryl's got a new podcast, which is uh, called uh, No uh, No Apologies. So you should check that out on the Comic Book Roadshow feed. Uh, our buddy Lou Crippled Avenger types in. He's going to have to go with Two Face. It's easy. One of the fine uh, Two Face is easily one of the finest crafted villains in comics. To go from a true good guy to a true bad guy was amazing to watch. He's a bad guy now for sure, but you know how he truly got there, and you don't get that with a lot of modern-day villains. He's amazing. All of his crimes involving two is cool, and while everyone sees the Joker as Batman's ultimate villain, I see uh, Two-Face as number one, because Batman, in my opinion, can easily see himself in both sides of the face. Best version, a tie between Batman, the animated series, and the Dark Knight. Worst version, Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, that's that's pretty good. I'll have to agree with him on that one. Yeah, no doubt. Joel Schumacher, Tay Fail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, one thing I will say about Two Face is Two Face is kind of like an amalgam of Batman and the Joker. You know what I mean? I mean, you have the Harvey Dent side who wants to do well and and is for justice, and then you have the the random side who sees the chaos in life. You know, so I I, I see where he's coming from with that. Just piggybacking off that for for a second, because he was kind of Luke was kind of talking about how you don't see that kind of uh, story build for a villain. Do you guys think there's a villain that could 
hold a monthly right now? Or l- let me rephrase that. What villain would you like to see have an ongoing monthly? I know I kind of just threw that out you out of the blue. You might have to think about it a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think the best place to go to is obviously Secret Six right now with Gail Simone. I mean, that's pretty good. Thunderbolts I've picked up on occasion to get that fill. I think if there was a team, Legion of Doom, no. If there was a team that could do it, it would probably be the Flash Rogues that could do that. But I, I, I don't imagine the Rogues getting an ongoing you know, with Captain Cold and all those guys. But I will say that Scott Collins and Ethan and um, Howard Porter, they have certainly done uh, a heap of good with Jeff Johns uh, building the rogues up. You know, it's just funny that, you know, Batman has a rogues gallery, uh, you know, Superman has a rogues gallery, but there's the rogues, appropriately called the rogues, you know. And I I would say that a Captain Cold Heatwave Weather Wizard uh, Trickster... That would just be a pretty amazing ongoing, I think. Plus, you can throw like Pied Piper in the mix and stuff with that. So, I, I would say like that would probably be best served as a team book. But that kind of makes me question, though, because they recently announced the uh, Magog or Magog ongoing from DC, and of all the stinkers that I've heard announcement-wise, no disrespect to the creators, but and I had posted this on the forums, you know, from when we did Kingdom Come, you know, a couple months back. Didn't we pretty much come to the consensus from our research and stuff that Magog was supposed to be the incarnation of everything that was wrong with 90s comics? And I'm kind of wondering why they're why not do, like I just mentioned, a Red Tornado-type miniseries with the guy instead of doing an ongoing. That really doesn't make sense to me. I, I understand the allure of Kingdom Come, but, I mean, just in a design standpoint, the dude is just Cable with golden ram horns. I mean, it's not really a, a rallying cry, I think, for, you know, book buying. I think that would have been better served as a miniseries. Yeah, I see it going maybe maybe 12 issues tops and then done. You are far more generous than I. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd like to see Kingpin. I think they could do a crime, uh, you know, Brubaker criminal type like book. with a, Like an underworld? Kind yeah, of like how Kingpin runs the, the world of crime. Penguin. <laughs> yeah. For me, I still think that a Joker book done right could be really fun and a good monthly. Um, just, you know, totally taking the maniacal side of the Joker and finding a way to, to do that every month. I think, I think it's, I really do think it could work. I know they, they did it many, many years ago and, and it didn't last very long. But that, or, you know, Dark Rain almost is, is that book now. And given all the, the one shots that they're doing, which are mostly focused on the, on the villains, um, I, I would, I would, you know, that stuff, whether it's working or not, you know, I guess they're, they're trying to see what sticks and, and move forward. But, uh, but I don't know why. Whenever I think of monthly villains, Joker just stands up. Jim, you're up. I would like to see them bring back Supervillain Team Up, and not in a miniseries way, but in an ongoing series way, and just, you know, sometimes feature major villains, sometimes feature minor villains. Modox 11 was a hilarious and, and really cool idea, and I'm sure that, you know, with, uh, you know, fanboys like Dan Slott and Fred Van Lente and, um, and Jeff Parker, you know, in the bullpen, they could easily come up with uh, great stories about villains, you know, maybe, you know, focus on a different villain each time, or do, uh, like, supervillain team-up did, and basically have the villains fight each other for supremacy. Um, I thought it was a great idea for a comic back in the day when I was a little kid, and I think it's a great idea for a comic now. And like uh, you said, Secret Six is really good, and I enjoy that as well. 
and it, it definitely flashes me back to the old uh, Secret Society of Supervillains comic. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I mean, I really enjoyed how uh, Funky Flashman and the Wizard kind of like vied for control over the Secret Society, and then Grodd kind of like threw his hat in the ring later on, and then you know Darkseid did the same. But that kind of goes into like the evil genius realm. Dan from San Antonio. Uh, writes our wives. No, <laughs> um, he write, uh, Dan wrote Loki or Thanos or a villain who isn't a villain, Galactus, which sounds pretty cool. New dude, uh, Warp Speed. I have not heard of Warp Speed. He's got 50 posts, so we got a new member on our hands. Thanks for listening, dude. Best villains of the moment are some of the new Spider-Man ones. I'm going to guess he's going to include the spot in that, but he says especially Mr. Negative, which I did pick up the Dark Rain one-shot on this guy. This guy is pretty cool, Mr. Negative. If for any uh, Spider or Dark Rain fans out there, that's that's worth a pickup, and it's a good intro to the character too. Yeah, unfortunately, Ken I think is the only guy out of us reading current Spider-Man, um, and he couldn't be here tonight, so I'm not familiar with that character yet. He's just kind of Wait. a wacko. He's really cool looking, though. Isn't there a Mister Negative on the comic forums? His name is Mister Blisterfist. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> or is it a Preche? I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh my! <laughs> we are not making friends. I ignore them anyway. So um, they don't listen. So no, appreciate <laughs> cool, but it's blistering comments like that, Jim. That's why we keep you around. We love you, Sean Pryor. One of the great things about comics is that a talented writer can make the most poorly put together villain from days of yesterday and turn them into something formidable. For example, when Grant Morrison wrote the JLA, he turned the key from a mort into a methodical, calculated mind slash reality warped villain that gave the big seven a run for the money i'll say the same thing about uh, prometheus sean's uh, dead on there but of course you know morrison created prometheus that is until connor hawk defeated him with green arrows boxing glove arrow priceless um i did a quick uh, facebook shout out here and we got a couple guys to chime in and we'll go around the horn i asked everybody what their um worst or lamest supervillain was uh uh, Chris Mosby from the forums, Mosby, uh, writes in Condiment King. Does anybody remember where the Condiment King is from? Yeah, it's from the Batman animated series, right? Yes, that is correct. Uh, he was glad that Batman could catch up with him, and he relishes his presence. Um, <laughs> Too bad he couldn't cut the mustard. Uh, Sean Pryor writes Pink Pearl. Do anybody know where Pink Pearl comes from, Russ? No. Anybody? I saw her perform at uh, Rump Shakers the other night, didn't I? <laughs> Pink Pearl's from Alpha Flight. And ah. Ziggo, Leroy, a.k.a. our buddy from Comic Tube, writes uh, the guy that wants to step on the Smurfs. So, <laughs> Gargamel. So there's a good one. Mad um, scientist. Yeah, there's the, yeah, he was definitely like an alchemist. He always had those test tubes of like crazy bubbling things coming out of them. I just don't know why he just, you know, strap on his Doc Martens and just go romping and stomping or, you know, have like a hillbilly hoedown square dance right in the village. That he couldn't been find the village. Oh, son of a... But um, what, what's uh, what's your favorite villain team? What is your favorite villain team? I'm going to have to go with the Legion of Doom for that one. What do you think, Russ? Um, I, I want to say the... I, I, I'll say the Flash Rogues. Hmm. I'll, go with the, uh, I'll go with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Since uh, Russ didn't go there, or uh, the Fatal yeah. Five from the Legion, I always liked them. Yeah, Validus, Validus is kind of a crazy dude. He's just like, kind of like Kang from uh, the Ninja Turtles, but his brain's like up top in a just a glass Simon-like uh, dome. That's pretty weird too. They're pretty cool. 
I like the um, Sinister Six Spider-Man when those guys get together, Doc Ock there's, and right. There's really like eight of them or twelve of them or whatever. Right. After, after all these years, they keep rotating them in and out. What about a uh, favorite chick villain? Catwoman. Yeah, Catwoman's tough to beat, but just so there's no repeats, I'll, I'll go with Elektra, who is sometimes a villain. I'm going to say Emma Frost. Um, she's a villain for a long time. I'm I'm still not convinced that she's not going to be a villain. So I'm, I'm going to give Mystique a shout-out, too. Love Mystique. And I'm going to say Granny Goodness for the win, because she <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> so I want to... I, I know we're running long, but I want to just shout out real quick in closing um, if nobody has anything else. No, go ahead. Back in 94, I pulled this off my shelf today um, in prep for this for this episode, but back in 94, Wizard, when when Wizard was actually still a pretty pretty good quality magazine and before the internets were really around to, to, to provide us with all the info that we, we get now, Wizard did the thing, it was called Wizard Press Collector's Library Series, this is volume one, and it was called The Dark Book. And they promoted the heck out of this thing in Wizard Magazine back in the day. Um, and it has this really, really cool image of Carnage on the cover. And it's really well drawn. And it, he, he almost the way they texture him is almost like when you're mixing paint, you just kind of let it swirl around. It's like these reds and blacks and all this stuff coming off. And it has the official Wizard hologram on there so you know it's authentic. And it went through and it was just a, it was just a book about villains. And it went through the different eras of villains, the different types of villains. Um, it even had a poster of the, the top 100 villains that's uh, still in the book. But um, I was just going to shout out a few things here to see how the times uh, have definitely changed from, from the early 90s. Um, one and two still hold up. Um, number one, they, they rank the Joker as the all-time you know greatest villain. Magneto was number two. But then we get kind of the next few are interesting. I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to read all these, but I'll just go to the next couple. Master Dark was number three from Shadow Man, from Valiant, so that'll show you where the mindset of comics was at that time. <laughs> number four was The Violator, Spawn, from Image, and then number five was Angela, from Spawn. So there's a lot of Spawn-centric. Uh, one of the interesting things was, and I think if this is, re, you know, of course, you know, times change, if this is redone today, Sinestro was number 84. So I definitely see, uh, see somebody like Sinestro making it up in the world. The Violator was crazy. Yeah. I wasn't a big Spawn fan, but he was like a fat clown, and he and turned into like a giant, like evil alien looking thing. That was nuts. Yeah, Master bad. Dark was pretty badass too. He was this bald guy covered with tattoos, kind of looked like Mister Zaz from uh, Batman. Yeah. What do you guys think about uh, non superhero comic villains? I'd say uh, Saint of Killers from Preacher is uh, pretty high on the list. He's pretty crazy. I'll say the Corinthian from Sandman. Yeah, okay, you win. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'd go with Vader, Darth Vader, and Darth Krayt from various Star Wars books. I don't think I know a non-superhero villain that wasn't named. <laughs> oh, well. One um, really good book to check out, they should have this um, in hardcover and in softcover uh, still, it's called, I read this like two years ago, it's called Soon I Will Be Invincible, and it's by a dude whose last name is Grossman. Austin and, Grossman. Yeah, that's, that's it. And it, basically, it's just a novel um, about uh, this kind of shift in perspectives between this dude called Dr. Impossible, who's a scientist 
turned into a, a giant uh, science type supervillain. And it's a really cool, it's a fun novel. I mean, I could, you know, you could definitely tell it was like kind of like a first attempt in the supervillain genre. He doesn't have like everything down pat, but he hits the high notes, you know what I mean? Like the whole cackling and, and stuff. There's, there's a lot of good cues in there, but not a lot of necessarily comic uh, tip of the hats or anything like that or, or send-offs. But um, Soon I Will Be Invincible by Austin Grossman is, is a cool book to read without pictures in it. Who reads those? But um, that's a cool one to check out. And I think we also wanted to shout out our buddy Big Jim since we got his website wrong last week. Our buddy Big Jim is taking commissions. You can check out his website at BigJimSucks at blogspot.com. And I think uh, you know John and I talked last week and waxed philosophical and we were fancying ourselves as erudite East Coast elitists in the Museum of Modern Art looking at his awesome artwork, and it is really awesome. So please check out um, Jim Miller's website, bigjimsucks.blogspot.com. Um, it'll be worth your while, and he's an awesome dude, friend of the show, and all-around good guy. Yeah. Sorry for screwing up your website. Yeah, we are <laughs> not professionals, um, so sorry, Jim, but we wanted to you know, shout you out and stuff. And also Daryl's new show, which is, gonna be, which is pretty cool. He's already got two episodes out, so check that out on the Comic Book Roadshow feed. And if you're downloading this on Thursday, uh, this weekend is the Pittsburgh Comic-Con. There will be dudes on premises, so if you see us, give us a wave or a shout-out, and we're mostly harmless as long as we're on our meds. Yeah, I'll be uh, probably listening to this episode on the way to Pittsburgh, so we'll have some interviews and stuff for everybody in the coming weeks from Pittsburgh. PKD Media is going to be at the Pittsburgh Comic-Con. Sean Pryor is going to have... XO one and the Rock Solid Steelbots, issue zero. He's going to have Mercury and the Murd, the collected edition. And Sean's also going to have PKD Media Presents number one. So uh, Chad Chacone is going to be there. He's going to be doing sketches. Friend of the show, Andrew, Par- Andrew Charapar is going to be there doing sketches. Of course, the guys from Comic Geek Speak, who we thank for uh, hosting the forums and everything else. Uh, they're going to be there. And um, I hope we run into the guys from Raging Bullets and everybody else, and we're going to have a good time. So if you're in Pittsburgh and you're at the con, um, stop by the CGS booth. We'll have the uh, food itinerary for the weekend up, and I'll have my phone number on there in case anybody needs a ride or needs directions and whatnot. We're going to hit up Mad Mex on Friday, and then everybody's favorite, Permani Brothers, on Saturday. So um, it's going to be a really fun time, and you guys are more than welcome to tag along, hang out, and we'll have a good old romp and stomping time back in uh, the Steel City. Looking forward to it. Word. So I think we're good for this evening. Um, next week, Iron Fist Omnibus Part 2. And what's our one shot after that? I keep forgetting. Is it The Goon? The Goon. Nothing but misery. The first uh, trade. The origin of The Goon. Sweet. And I just want to go on record as saying Khloe Kardashian is the worst supervillain of all. <laughs> <laughs> So send us comments at comments at legionofdudes.com. Drop us a voicemail, 516-468-7912. Say hello. We'd like to hear from you. Get it up on the show. And from... Follow us on Twitter on LOD Tweet. Yes. Oh, I always forget to push the stupid Twitter. LOD Tweet on your Twitter, and we got a Legion of Dudes group on Facebook, and... HHWLOD.com. Reach out and touch it, dude. And I know we have a bunch of listeners and stuff, but if you friend one of us, like Adam Reed's on Facebook, Dan Ashland's on Facebook, myself, uh, Jim Dietz, 
and Ken Morgan are on Facebook. You know, you can see like what you know Jim's making for dinner at the restaurant and stuff, or when I'm screaming about greeting papers. But let us know who you are. Like, hey, we listen to the show, and then we'll be friends with you because I've had like a bunch of really, really weird friend requests, and I don't want to you know get internet or cyber stalked or anything or murdered. So yes. let us know you're a fan, and if you're a homicidal fan, well, you got one over on us. So props to you. So just let us know what's up, and you know we'll be happy to invite you into the fold. That would be great. I have not been reinstated to Facebook yet at this time. I'm waiting for some kind of trial. Charges pending. But right. But you must have really done a number. You must have done a number. Man. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the offensive things on the internet, and you must have just you must have just showed them who's boss. Because I can't imagine what you could have done to get kicked off the internet, John. I broke it good. <laughs> have a good night, everybody. Good night. Let's broaden our minds. Lawrence!